So the scripture this morning is James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you could all stand, please, for the reading of God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but there's nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Dean. And I just wanted to add my word of thanks to Connie. Um, I, I didn't realize all those things at Julie. So you, you were the iron woman of the day, Connie. And I want to thank Jim. You get the prize for filling your row today. The Rose Clan here, yes. I don't know what the prize is, but you get it. And just a reminder, um, and I need to more, more, be more faithful about this, about, remember our thing, our challenge about 5555 five, five, five a few weeks ago? Uh, five people in your neighborhood that you'll five, pray five blessings for five minutes a day for five weeks. I kind of like to take that last five off there because I don't think, oh, well, five weeks is up. We're done. I think, you know, we need to keep praying. But just a reminder about that um, and see what God will do with that. I thought it was kind of interesting that Julie talked about being raised on a pig farm this morning. Um, But I always said I wanted a farm girl. I didn't know she would come from a pig farm. We love pigs. We love pigs. We do like ham and bacon 
and pork roast and pork chops and pork sausage. So there. Uh, hey, I did better than I ever thought I would. So, Faith that works. I almost thought about saying faith that works, works. Get it? Charles Blondet lived from 1824 to 1897 and was a famous French tightrope walker and acrobat. His greatest fame came in 1859 when he he accomplished one of his greatest feats for the first time by walking an 1,100-foot tightrope suspended 160 feet across the waters of Niagara Falls. Blondet went on to walk across the falls several times, each with a different theatrical flair. Um, I guess he did it on stilts. He did it with his eyes closed. Uh, He did it with a guy on his shoulders. Now, that was his agent. Nobody else would. (laughs) One such high wire walk, Blondet crossed, on one such high wire walk, Blondet crossed over the falls, pushing a wheelbarrow. When he reached the other side, he asked the spectators if they believed he could do it again. Everyone cheered. Blondet then asked if they believed he could again cross a tightrope with someone in the wheelbarrow. Everyone cheered, believing he could do it and waiting to see this incredible stunt. Blondet then asked for a volunteer to ride in the wheelbarrow. No one stepped forward. It was one thing to believe that Blondet could do what they had all seen him doing and another to put your life in his hands, letting him push you across the falls on a high wire. Blondet demonstrated that there is often a great difference between the faith we say we have and the faith we really have. James recognized the same sort of problem was at work among the people that he was writing to. James says, in essence, the issue is not what we say about our faith, it's what we do about our faith. And there's an apparent contradiction in this passage of Scripture, and I don't know if it came to your minds or not. Paul says in his writings that salvation cannot be earned, it is by faith alone. Uh Uh-oh. James says that Christianity, our faith, is more than a label we wear. Our faith must result in action. So let's look at this for a moment. Over the centuries, the human race has passed along a lot of wisdom from generation to generation. Wise old sayings are a part of everyday life and we use them without thinking. Example, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Lots of great insight into life has passed through the centuries this way with these sayings. So, I'm going to give you a couple of adages here. um, And I want you to tell me which one is the best counsel about life in general. Raise your hand for the one that you think is the general best choice for a philosophy you should live your life by. Okay, here we go. Here's the two. I'm going to read them first and then I'll ask you to raise your hand 
for the one you think is best as a general way to live your life. The first one is, look before you leap. The second one is, he who hesitates is lost. Okay? Who believes that look before you leap is the just best general philosophy for the way to live your life? Raise your hand. How many believe that he who hesitates is lost is the best? Well, we have a split decision here. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Two exactly opposite adages, yet it really does depend on the situation. If you're speaking to a group of cliff divers, you might want to remind them of the adage, look before you leap. If you were talking to a farmer whose harvesting equipment is broken this time of year, you might need to remind him he who hesitates is lost. So there's this, there is some tension between these two ideals. In the Bible, there are also opposing concepts that have a tension between them. And it does, doesn't make either of them not true. It simply means they are speaking to different situations. An example from Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. First verse, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. The very next verse says, Answer a fool according to his folly, or you, or he will be wise in his own eyes. What? Two statements that seem to contradict, but both are true depending on the application. Now, it's not too hard to, to overlook the tension between old adages and even a proverb about how to answer a foolish person, but it's not always so easy to overlook the situation when it strikes to the core of the faith. You cannot ignore the issue when it is something as fundamental as salvation. But some have tried to say that there is the, is the same kind of tension between whether we are saved by faith or we are saved by what we do, by works. They say that there is disagreement between Paul who wrote Romans, and James, who wrote the letter we read from earlier. So Paul was dealing with the problem of people seeking to be justified by God on the basis of their works of goodness. Did you hear what I said? Paul was dealing with the problem of people seeking to be justified by God on the basis of their works of goodness. In other words, by keeping the law. Which, by the way, he said is impossible. It can never be done. Salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ who died for the sins of mankind. James, on the other hand was dealing with the problem of people who claim to have faith and therefore be saved, but who exhibit no evidence of that faith in an active Christian life. 
In other words, it's like they had this, a little pin they wore, like I've got on today, but it didn't say Pastor Sid. It said Christian. And that's the only way you knew. Because of the little label they wore. It wasn't evidenced in the works they did. That's the, that's the situation that James is dealing with. If salvation were likened to a tree, then both Paul and James would agree that the root of the tree is faith alone, but the fruit of the tree is good works. Amen? Paul, in fact, expressed this very clearly elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where he said this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so, so that no one can boast. There we are. He has stated it so clearly. We cannot be saved from sin and restored to right standing before God by anything we might do. It's not by works. We can only be saved by the grace of God when we cast all our trust upon Jesus as our Savior. But now listen to the very next verse. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So you're saved by faith alone, but that faith should result in good works. Good works are the natural fruit of true saving faith. So if our lives do not evidence Christian service and godly conduct and love for others, then we need to question whether we have real faith at all. And that is James' point precisely. So, James describes in this passage that, that Dean read for us this morning, he describes three kinds of faith. First of all, he talks about faith that is static. Faith that is dead is not really faith. That kind of faith substitutes Talk for action. You know, that's the old thing about you talk a good talk, but you need to walk your talk. James doesn't really say that this is faith at all. Look at verse 14. If a man claims to have faith, that's what he says. So he's not really saying this is faith at all. James is talking here about a person who claims to have faith and James is testing that claim. Look, look at the example James gives. Someone claims to have faith, but when they see a brother or sister who doesn't have any food or clothing to get through one day, what is their response? Oh, well go. I wish you well. I hope you keep warm and well fed. Good luck. Have a good life. See you later. Well, James didn't say all those things, but but he might as well have, right? Because that's the attitude here. Wow, that's that's really too bad. I I I hope things work out for you. I'll keep you in my prayers. And that's fine. We probably should. 
But is that really enough? By the way, how often have we said that? I'll keep you in my prayers and then we just totally, whoop, it goes away. Remember, I, uh, I preached a series on prayer, I don't know when, a year or two or three ago. How long have I been here? Maybe it was six years ago, I don't know. Anyway, and I said, we do that a lot. Bob comes to me and says, he shares with me a need, and I say, I'll pray for you, Bob. And next Sunday morning, I see Bob walking through the church door, and it's like, oh no, dear God bless Bob. Bob, I've been praying for you. (laughs) Yeah. So that's important. But the fact that this person has walked away and and not received any kind of action from our faith is the issue with James here. James says, listen, any faith you claim to have that isn't accompanied by action is dead. Whatever it is that you're claiming to have is not the living, life-changing, motivation, motivating, constraining faith in Jesus Christ that comes from God. It's not saving faith at all. To sort of paraphrase what James says here, faith plus nothing equals nothing. Faith without fruit is no faith at all. It's dead. So back to verse 14. Again, note the question that he asks. If a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? And this has caused quite a bit of unnecessary confusion. People have read that can that phrase, can faith, such faith save him, have concluded that James is flatly contradicting Paul. Paul clearly says that we only, can only be saved by grace through faith. Here is James seemingly questioning whether faith can save at all. Can such faith save him, he says? But there is no dilemma really. The problem is simply with the translation of James. The word faith there in the original Greek has the definite article. Literally, it should read like this. If someone says he has faith, but does not have good works, can that faith save him? And that's a valid question, isn't it? Can that kind of faith that people claim one that is long on words but short on action, can it be saving faith? And the answer, according to James, is absolutely not. Three times in this passage that we read today, James makes it clear, faith without works, without accompanying action, is dead. It's like a corpse lying in a casket, all dressed up, all made up, looking perhaps lifelike, but it has no life at all. No breath, no movement, nothing but a mannequin with a painted smile. It's dead. Don't comfort yourself with that kind of faith. Bury it. Listen very carefully 
For here is the summary of it. Any declaration of faith that does not result in a changed life and good works is a false declaration. It's dead faith. In the ancient world, someone who came across a person who appeared to be dead might hold a mirror up under that person's nose. And if marks appeared on the mirror, and we know what that's like, then they knew the person was still, still breathing. They were still alive. If no marks appeared, they knew the body was dead. Or at least they hoped they were right. In the same way, James puts the mirror of God's Word under our nose. And if the marks of works appear, then faith is alive. However, if no marks of good works appear, then our faith is without fruit, and it is a false faith, a futile faith, and a fatal faith. It's dead. Then he addresses the second kind of faith in verses 18 and 19. Faith that is inadequate. And James uses demons as an example that mere belief in God is not enough. How often have you gotten into a conversation with someone and they say, oh, I believe in God. James is saying, well, that's great, but guess what? The demons of hell believe in God too. So much so that they quake in fear when they think about it. Because they know who God is. Now, maybe he did that for shock value. I don't know. Even the demons have the kind of faith that some people claim. But they have no salvation. It's not saving faith. Listen, folks, there are many people who give mental assent to the reality of God. Mental assent to the reality of Christ. Maybe, maybe even mental assent to the facts of the Gospel. And I, I would admit to you that orthodox theology is better than denial, but orthodox theology is not enough. You want to know something? The demons of hell have pretty good theology. They believe in God. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. All demons believe in the death of Christ on the cross for the sins of the whole world. They believe God created the earth. There is no such thing as a heretical demon. They believe everything orthodox, everything, and they shudder. That word means bristle. It makes their hair stand on end. That's what it's talking about. They're in a high degree of terror. When they think about those truths that they believe, it freaks them out. That's how we would say it. So follow this now. The demons of hell go one better than religious phonies do. Demons say, I believe, and they bristle with terror because they understand the implications of that belief. Right? 
They are in grave fear. And it says of men, in Romans 3 verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Men don't fear God, demons do. What? What a contrast. So James says, you believe in God, do you? You believe in the orthodox truth, do you? You believe in the right stuff? Well, the demons are one up on you. They believe it too and they tremble. They fear God. They understand the full implications of what they believe and how it's going to end up for them, by the way. So the demons of hell are one step above the person who has a dead faith. Dead faith is not faith at all. It's just words. Inadequate faith believes something. It just doesn't go far enough. Can this kind of faith save? Well, are the demons of hell saved? They have no hope of salvation. Their judgment is certain. And it would seem so for those with inadequate faith. And then, he goes on to talk about dynamic faith, verses 20 through 26. And James uses two different people by way of illustration that his audience would have been entirely familiar with. He speaks of Abraham and Rahab. I mean, that was part of the Jews' history with God. Yet, even as he uses these two as examples of faith, they were in many ways complete opposites. Abraham was the father of the Jews. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a godly man. Rahab had been a sinful woman, in all likelihood a prostitute. Abraham was a friend of God. Rahab had belonged to the enemies of God. So what did these two have in common? Abraham and Rahab demonstrated their genuine faith by their actions. By their actions. The faith of Abraham and Rahab made a noticeable difference in their lives and in the lives of the people around them. Their faith in God led them to act upon that faith. And think about how... um, I, I think about especially of Rahab's faith. Because her faith in God saved her entire family. Remember when she, when she protected the spies that came into Jericho and helped them escape? They said, leave the scarlet cord outside the window. Bring your family into your house. And so Rahab's faith, she saw what God was doing and she believed. And her faith ended up not only saving herself, but her entire family. Some years back, you, you all remember uh, Mao Zedong, the Chinese dictator? When, well, when he died, some of the Chinese leadership was afraid of what would happen to the nation without their legendary leader. So they called in his personal doctor, Dr. Li Jisui, 
to do an impossible task. They wanted the chairman's body permanently preserved. The doctor didn't want to do it. He had seen the dried up, shrunken remains of Lenin and Stalin in the USSR. He was a doctor. He knew that a body with no life is doomed to rot. But he had his commands. So, 22 liters of formaldehyde were pumped into the dead chairman's body. The result was horrifying. Mao's face swelled up like a ball and his neck was as thick as his head. The pressure of the fluid in his body caused his ears to stick out at right angles and the chemical uh, uh, oozed from his pores. Yeah, I know, this is exciting, isn't it? A team of embalmers worked five hours with towels and cotton balls to force the liquids down into his body. Finally, the face looked normal, but the chest was so swollen that the jacket had to be slit in the back and his body was covered with the red Communist Party flag. Pretty sickening, isn't it? There is absolutely nothing natural about a dead body. Now, I've been to a few funerals. Preachers get to do that, you know. And I've seen a number of dead bodies. And you can put, you can put makeup on them. And you can fix their hair and dress them up in the best clothes that money can buy. But there's still something unnatural about a body with no life. And there are people with dead faith who try to give the appearance of life. They go to church a few times. Sometimes they would place a Bible on the coffee table and dust it off. Some people, if they are asked about their faith, will talk about their church membership and as if that is their get-out-of-hell-free pass. But there's nothing natural about a faith that doesn't affect the way you live. So, is your faith described as dead, inadequate, or dynamic? And let me give you a few ways to check your spiritual vital signs, your faith vital signs. How do you feel about worship? Is it something that is a priority with you, or is it something you would just as soon miss if something better came along? What kinds of goals do you have for your life? When you think about the things you would like to do for the next five or ten years, are you at the center or are there people and God in the middle? How do you feel about giving? Is it a painful experience or are you the cheerful giver Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians? How often do you study the Bible? Is it something that gets no attention in your life? Or are you actively pursuing a greater knowledge of God and His will for your life? And are you obedient to the Word? See, the... You know, have you seen all this stuff about um, the walking dead on television? Why would anybody want to watch dead people shows? I don't know that. But there's a lot about that. These people who are the walking dead. And sometimes the church has people in it who are the walking dead. 
They're, they're spiritual zombies. People who think they're living by faith, but who know nothing about what it means to be excited and challenged and experience the joy of a dynamic faith. And you know what? People outside the church recognize that. And it keeps them from wanting to become a part of what they view as a sanctified costume party where people dress up and talk like they have faith, but do, don't do anything that looks like they really trust in Jesus. When Jesus called out to the men that he had chosen to be his disciples, he said, Come, follow me. And at that point, the choice whether to follow Jesus or not rested on the disciples' decision whether they trusted Jesus or not. If they hadn't trusted Him fully, they might have said, Sure, Jesus, I'll follow you, and then gone about their daily routine completely unchanged. If that had been the case, the kind of, that kind of lip service would have been what James calls dead faith. But instead of that kind of empty profession of faith, the disciples walked with Jesus daily wherever he went. They learned from him. They grew in their knowledge of him and they sought to obey him. And as a result of their faith, they were even willing to die rather than renounce him. They did that because they trusted that even if somebody took away their physical life, Jesus would hold for them a life that nobody could take away. That, folks, is dynamic faith. That's the kind of faith I want to have. That's the kind of faith we need to have as a church body that will be attractive to watching world. Right? I mean, if we just are people who put on their magnetic label that says Christian, is that really enough? If there isn't something in the way we live our lives that says we have a dynamic faith in Jesus Christ that makes a difference in us and hopefully in others, isn't that something that the world is looking for? I, you know, I, uh, for me, this is a pretty convicting passage. It's too easy not to be bothered, right? It's too easy not to step out of our comfort zone. You know, um, Julie and I had an experience like that Friday. We had these big plans. We were going to celebrate her birthday on Friday because, well, you know, you get into the weekend and everybody's free to go do what they want and it gets crowded in all the places you want to go, so we're going to do our thing on Friday. And then we got a call and someone needed help and it's like, oh no. We've got these plans and... And I'll, I'll, I'll be honest with you, we, we went ahead and, and helped, but we did it begrudgingly at first. But the farther along that it went the more I was able to say, you know what? 
I can do this little thing. I can do this little thing. Here's someone in need. They, they need our help right now. I can do this little thing. You know, it's, it's okay. God sometimes changes our plans when we don't expect it to happen, doesn't he? <laughs> we all laugh about it. And sometimes we've, it's been that okay in the moment, and sometimes in that moment it's been... And that's kind of where I started. But when I got through, Julie and I said, boy, we're sure glad we did that. I want to have dynamic faith. I want us to be a church of dynamic faith because that's what makes a difference. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good word that James shared with us. And we will admit it's pretty easy to put on the little magnetic label that says, I have faith or I'm a Christian or I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. But it has to be more than that. It has to be evidenced in the way we live, in our care for others, in the actions we take. Not mere words, but the actions we take. Our willingness to lay aside our own plans at times. Our willingness to risk change or to be uncomfortable. Our willingness, Father, to do those things that say that we are students of the Word, that we invest time in getting to know You and You will for our lives in a deeper way. And I pray, Lord God, that in these moments today that we've been challenged by Your Holy Spirit regarding our faith. Is it dead? Is it inadequate? Is it dynamic? And, and, and here's the good news for us. You're willing, in this moment, as we confess to you, that, Lord, maybe my faith isn't what it should be. Maybe it's not seen in the way I live. Maybe I'm not always willing to show my faith by my actions. Maybe it's a lack of courage or boldness or a hesitancy or a fear, whatever it may be. Maybe sometimes it's just plain old selfishness. And Lord, I confess that to you today. And I ask you to cleanse me of that. I want to have a faith that is seen in the way I live and in the actions I take. And in my willingness to come alongside others in need. And in my willingness to invest myself in those things that we call the spiritual disciplines that help me grow in my relationship and knowledge of Jesus Christ and His will for my life. So Lord God, we commit today not just to be people who say we have faith, but to be people who live our faith in such a way that it's undeniable that Jesus Christ lives in us because we believe that is what will impact our world. 
That's what will make a difference. That's what will draw people to a place where Jesus is alive and at work. May that be us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, bless you.